Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Drew Abercrombie. I'm the Director of Youth and Families at Cornerstone. Uh, Normally, you will find me on a Wednesday night uh, teaching our youth or uh, during Sunday school hour at Meredith's doing uh, Sunday school for the middle schoolers and the high schoolers. But today, it is my great pleasure to come with you this morning to the Word of God. We are in uh, the sixth chapter of Ephesians. We're continuing our series today. And we come to perhaps one of the most beloved and familiar passages in the book of Ephesians, um, the topic of many uh, a children's Sunday school. It's a part of the book of Ephesians where Paul is really taking the themes that he has spoken about throughout the letter, and he's tying them up at the end here. And what we find is that the truths of the, the first half of Ephesians are essential for us to live out the Christian life as described in the second half of Ephesians. Um, let's come to the word now. Let me read for us. Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the word and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would come and be with us now by your spirit. Give us fresh eyes and ears to see and hear wonderful things out of your word. We pray that you would make this uh, passage come alive for us, that we would see how we may live in the day-to-day struggles of the Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our our passage today um, is perhaps surprising in that it follows a, a passage where we have been talking about the Christian household. Paul has been talking about how we may walk out the Christian life, about how to submit to one another in reverence to Christ. And so he talks to husbands and wives. He talks to parents and and children and bondservants and and slaves. And then we come to uh, this passage, and it seems that we have made a sudden shift. 
Uh, He's gone from talking about domestic life to the cosmic sphere, the cosmic struggle of the Christian life. And you're like, whoa, wait, I thought we were at home and now we're fighting these spiritual forces. Uh, How did we get to talking about the cosmic sphere? Well, the answer here is that the cosmic sphere has never been very far beneath the surface in the book of Ephesians. From the very beginning, uh, Paul talks about the way that God has worked salvation for us in Jesus Christ. He talks about how from the very beginning, from the foundations of the world, the cosmos, he predestined us for adoption as as sons in Jesus. And how we were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, he says. That is the devil. And at that time, at that time, Christ saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. And now he seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. God raised Christ from the dead. And now Jesus is reigning and ruling at the right hand of God the Father with all of his enemies, those rulers, those authorities, those cosmic powers, all of those beneath his feet. And we are in some way seated with Christ because of our union with him in the gospel. So the cosmic has not been uh, under the surface. It's been there all along. In fact, it's present in the day-to-day life. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the issue of anger. And he says to not let the sun go down on our anger, lest we give an opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity, it literally means a place to stand. He's saying don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Something as ordinary as just anger can give the devil a foothold in your life. And so spiritual warfare, this this cosmic battle that uh, Paul is talking about, it's not some strange other kind of of Christian experience. It is the ordinary life of Christians. David Paulison says that spiritual warfare is a synonym for the ordinary struggles of the Christian life. So the spiritual battlefield is the landscape of our day-to-day life as we interact with people at home, at work, in school. That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that when we talk about spiritual warfare, we often slip into one of two pitfalls. Um, The first pitfall is that we, we think about it far, far too little and we underestimate the, the spiritual at dynamics of our life. And this is true because of our, the sheer secularity and, and worldliness and, and materialism of our age. We, we think primarily about physical problems and physical circumstances. And when we try to find ways out of those problems and circumstances, we rely primarily on materialistic and physical solutions. And so we discount the spiritual influences that are at work in our lives. The, the other pitfall is that we might think far too much and fixate upon the, spir- the spiritual warfare that's going on. And to the point where we see an evil spirit or a devil behind every problem or every sickness in our life, and then you'll, you can meet people who have a special method or cure for each and every single one of these things. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strategy for each kind of problem you encounter that requires a spiritual remedy. But the problem with both of these pitfalls is that it turns us away from depending upon God and we're relying instead on ourselves. 
relying on our own physical strength, our, our, our wits to get us out of trouble, or relying on some strategy or, or, or program to get us out of it. But what Paul is trying to draw us to is to forsake self-dependence, dependence upon our means of salvation and getting ourselves out of trouble, and instead put our hope and our trust in God, our Savior. And so we, we find in this passage that Paul has been telling us to, to walk. He's been telling us to walk in love, to walk in wisdom, walk in the light. But now he stops and he tells us to stand. Because the Christian life is indeed a walk. But it's not a walk in the park. It is hard. There are coordinated and uh, intelligent malign forces who are working to knock you off your feet and destroy you. And in our passage, Paul pulls back the curtain, as it were, to show us this reality and to teach us how we ought to respond in the face of this spiritual threat. And the the response is that we should take up the armor of God. Take up the resources that God himself has provided for us in Christ Jesus, in the gospel. So we're going to break down this passage into three, three sections. You can see a movement going on here. In the first uh, four verses, verse 10 to 13, Paul tells us why we need this armor of God. And then the next few verses, 14 to 17, he tells us the component parts of the armor. What is the armor of God? And then in the last Three verses, 18 to 20, he tells us how to take up the armor. So we have the why, we have the what, and the how. So let's, let's look at why. Why do we need the armor of God? It is because of the nature of our enemy. The nature of our enemy. There are three things I want you to notice from our passage today about uh, our enemy. The first is that our enemy is powerful. Paul piles up these these words. He says, we do not struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, the cosmic powers in this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's That's a mouthful. What he's trying to get across there is that there is a diversity and a magnitude of power, and they are set against us. Just just pause for a moment. Consider throughout the scriptures... Uh, the power of our spiritual enemy. Think of the devil in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis. He's the one who first tempted our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, to disbelieve God. And in so doing, he plunged the whole of creation into sin and death. You move on a little bit longer, further into the Bible, you read in Job that Satan causes a band of raiders to attack Job's estate. So all of his, everything that he owns, all the people who work for him are either stolen or killed or destroyed. And then later, in the next, the ne- almost the very next day, Satan causes a wind to blow down the home, the place where his children are staying, and it collapses and all of his children die. This is the power of Satan. You continue a little bit further. In, in First Chronicles, we read about David. He was incited by Satan to sin against God by taking a census of the people. And then you come to the Gospels. Judas, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot and caused him to betray Jesus into the hands 
of those who wanted to kill him and crucify him. Our enemy is powerful. Perhaps most vividly and, and in fact, relevant to our passage, there's a, there's a chapter in Acts, chapter 19, where we hear a description of spiritual warfare happening in the very city of Ephesus. It's a, a story about seven Jewish exorcists who are trying to cast out an evil spirit from a man. They had heard about the ministry of Paul in the city and how in the name of Jesus, Paul had done many, many miracles. And so they thought that perhaps they should try using the name of Jesus as well. They didn't follow Jesus. They didn't trust Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But they thought that, okay, there's some power here. Maybe we can use it too. And so they were trying to use Jesus' name like a magic word or incantation, that kind of thing. And so they go and they, they try this out. And what happens is that the, the man with the evil spirit says to them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I have heard of. But who are you? And then he, the man jumped, jumped on them overpowered all seven of them and beat them so badly that they had to run away naked and bleeding. Just take a moment. You know that if you have been in a combat and you're running away naked and bleeding, you have lost. You have lost. This is power beyond you. And and that's what everybody else, that's the conclusion everybody else in Ephesus drew as well. They saw, they, they were in awe of Jesus after this. And they, they, they the people, uh, both non-believers and believers who still had these magic books, they had these, these things, methods that they used to try to get things ha- to happen in their life. They tried to use magic to control the circumstances of their life. They took their magic books, their spell books, and they burned them on a bonfire because they despaired of their own ability to succeed against such power. And even, even Christians who had these, they were, they were still following some of their old habits. So they burned their books, their magic books, and the word of God increased because of it. So our enemy is powerful. Second, our enemy is crafty. We need God's strength in order to stand against, Paul says, the schemes of the devil. The devil is a schemer. The Greek word is, is methodes. It sounds like the word for method. Uh, the, the, the devil has methods. He has strategies, long refined, long practiced, all for the purpose of subtly destroying your life and your relationships. One of his, one of his most common methods in our day and age is to deceive people to think that he does not even exist and that he is not active. That's one of his major methods today. I was reminded of this when, uh, Actually, on my, on my wedding day. I was reminded of this fact on my wedding day. So Kelly and I, we, we got married um, in, in Korea, and our pastor was preaching to us, and he, and he shared with us three, three things. He shared with us three things. And I forgot two of those things. But <laughs> one of those things uh, that's really stuck in my mind was this. He, you know, I'm standing here, and, and Kelly's standing here. We're looking at each other. And he says to us, the person across from you is not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. I don't know what your experience has been, but in my experience, those words have been very applicable in my life. There are moments in your life, in your marriage, where you think the people closest to you are your enemy, whether it's a spouse or maybe a brother or a sister. Um, 
you know, your parents or your children, all of them we may mistake for our enemy when in fact it is Satan who is our enemy. Maybe it's a, a difficult teacher or an overbearing boss. All of these are not our enemies. The opposing political party is not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And he would delight in us being pitted against each other, bitter and resentful and wrathful, all while ignorant of how he's orchestrating it all, destroying us. He is crafty. The other part is, the third thing, our enemy is, is evil. Paul calls them the spiritual forces of evil, the cosmic powers of darkness. Because they are evil, there is no compromise that can be had. There can be no peace negotiated. There can be no armistice. And indifference in this combat and passivity in this warfare will inevitably, inevitably lead to surrender and complicity. That giving the devil a foothold in your life, giving him a base of operations in your life. You see, it's not just up to you. It's not just up to you. In any combat, it's not just up to you whether there is a war. In a war, it's not just up to one country. The enemy gets a vote as well. And when it comes to our spiritual enemy, his vote is war. Every time. Ceaseless, continual war. That's the nature of our enemy. He is powerful, crafty, and evil. And all this paints a pretty bleak and discouraging picture. And maybe you're thinking, like, you studied this passage in Sunday school, and they didn't talk about this, and it was way more encouraging than this. Um, and that, that's true. It should be, it, it, first, it needs to be discouraging before it can give you courage, because the courage needs to come from the right place. It can't come from us thinking that we are strong enough to face our enemy on our own. Because faced with a clear view of this enemy, you should despair of fighting your spiritual struggles on your own. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. Are you trying to overcome some sin in your life, some habitual sin in your own strength, by your own ingenuity? all while forgetting that there is someone, the Lord Jesus, who has put that sin underneath his feet? Maybe you are trying to disciple your family, and you have a, a great system, a, and even a biblical system. Um, but in the midst of applying that system, you have, stopped to, you have stopped praying to the Holy Spirit, asking for the wisdom that you need in each circumstance. You're depending more on the system you've set up than on the Lord who works through that system. Or maybe you're trying to share your faith by getting ready. You know, you, get, you read all the right books, you, you learn all the right answers, you know all the right apologetic responses, but you forget in the midst of that that yes, you should be prepared, but there's only one person who has the power to change a human's heart, and that's the Spirit of God. You see, the enemy is, is more powerful than us. He's smarter than us. He's craftier than us. And he has had thousands of years of experience. If we're going to progress in our Christian life, it's not going to be in our own strength. It will only be by the strength that God provides in his son, Jesus. And so that's why he talks about the armor 
of God. He calls us to take up the very armor that Jesus himself takes up on our behalf. So let's look at the what. Let's think some about this armor. Since we are outmatched by our enemy, we must equip ourselves with the resources that God provides. Now, Paul may have had a Roman soldier in mind as he was uh, thinking through this, writing this passage. It's a, maybe he was thinking of the, the shields that they carry or the different kinds of armor they wear. But in, in more li- it's more likely that he's drawing upon the Old Testament image of God. We read it today. In, in Isaiah chapter 59, God himself puts on a breastplate of righteousness. He puts on the helmet of salvation. He saw that his people were in a desperate state. He saw there was no one, no man to intercede for them. So what did he do? God himself arose and put on his battle armor, and he went out to war on behalf of his people, and he saved them and delivered them. This armor is not just the the armor of the Roman soldier. It's the armor of God. And in Isaiah chapter 11, we read that it's the armor of the Messiah. It's in in Isaiah 11 verse 5, it says that righteousness shall be the belt of his, the Messiah's waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is God's armor. This is the armor of the Savior. And what is God doing with this armor? He is making it available for his people so that they may take it up and stand against the schemes of the devil. So what are these pieces? What, are, what is this armor? You know, we were talking before earlier this week how you could almost break down this passage and you could do a, a whole sermon on each one of the pieces of armor. We're not doing that today. Uh, we're going to do one sermon and it's going to be a little bit fast because of that. So we're going to look at each of these pieces of armor, what they mean and how they apply to our lives. So we're going to start with the belt of truth, looking at the belt of truth. Truth in this passage can have two different meanings. It can mean truth objectively, like the content of truth, or it can mean truth subjectively, like the application of it. And and Paul probably means both here. When you look at the shape of Ephesians, you have the objective truth of the gospel proclaimed and declared in the first half. And in the second half, you have that truth applied subjectively in the lives of believers. So if, if we believe the truth of the gospel, that we are saved by grace, that we are redeemed, that we are adopted and made alive in Christ and seated with him in heaven. Those truths, those objective truths about who we are in Christ will shape the course of our day-to-day life. So there's objective truth and the subjective application of that truth in our lives. We live in conformity to the gospel. If you believe the truth, then you live by the truth. Now, because of the importance of the truth. I think it's appropriate that he calls it the belt of truth. What, is, what does the belt do? You know, it, the belt holds things up. It's really important. It's essential. And, and this is true for the belt as well. It makes sense that the belt should be likened to a truth and because, should be likened to a belt. And because of this, because of the importance of the truth, this is a regular target of spiritual attack by the enemy. Think back again to the first a uh, few chapters of Genesis, the first few chapters of the Bible. What does Satan attack first? He attacks the truth. 
and he inserts a lie and he asks Adam and Eve, did God really say? And he gets them to start to doubt the goodness of God and they fall for it. The truth is essential. Um, Satan would love to have us, you know, tossed to and fro by every wave, every, every new wind of teaching or, or doctrine or new trend or fashion. And, and one of the fashions that we find today in regards to truth is to consider the truth a, a kind of social construct. We talk about social constructs. Um, it's just something that we create. The truth is true, something that can be true for you, but not true for me. We have, I have my truth, you have your truth, and nobody should impose their truth on anybody else. And so that's the fashion to talk about the truth in that way. There's no capital T truth. There's only little, lots of little mini truths. What I understand, what I've experienced is that um, people will be happy to talk about the relativity of truth so long as, as, it, as, it, as it doesn't touch them. As soon as it starts to touch something that's important to them, they become the most ardent supporters of objective truth. But scripturally, scripturally, the truth is not defined by us. It's defined by the God who has created all things. Truth is determined and defined by God. And that, that means we ought to respond to it. Um, so what, what about in your own life? Do you live? Do you live in conformity to the truth that God has defined, to the truth that he has declared in his son, Jesus Christ? Or, like our first parents, are we letting little and big lies get into our lives and, and, and grow and then start to shape the course of our lives? Are we following the truth? Or are we starting to let lies uh, enter into our, li- our life so that we follow them because we like it. And then we come to the breastplate of righteousness, the second piece. And as, as, with, as with truth, it can be applied and understood in two different ways. There is the righteousness of Christ that is for us through the gospel. Jesus Christ covers us with his own holiness, his own righteousness. He forgives us, and we are made righteous in the sight of God. We are no longer at war with God. We have peace with God. He takes away our sins for the sake of Christ. And this is a wonderful, wonderful defense in our spiritual battles. So when, when Satan takes our sins and thrusts at us with them, thrusts them into our face, we can respond like Martin Luther did. He said, yes, these are all true. I'm guilty of all of these. In fact, there's a few that you missed. Here, let me add to the list. And then he said, but all these have been covered. All of these have been washed. I have been washed by the blood of Christ. I have been redeemed, and these have no power over me. That's the objective nature of our righteousness in Christ. But then there's also the other side of the practical righteousness that we demonstrate in our day-to-day living. So if we have the righteousness of Christ and it's been applied to us and we, we live out of that, then we ought to demonstrate it in a righteous life. Practical living, practical experience. And the way that Satan would like to attack this is to, twofold. Either he will want to turn us away from looking to Christ and instead looking to ourselves. So he'll want us to think of ourselves as righteous, but he'll make us self-righteous. So our hope is no longer in Christ's righteousness, but because we've been good. 
So he'll do that. Or the other alternative, he would have us live blatantly wicked lives so that while we bear the name of Christ, we are dishonoring his name. But that is not what the gospel calls us to. Christ has given us righteousness in, through his grace, and because of that, we can live confidently through his spirit growing in righteousness in our lives. Then we come to the third piece. The third item, it's sometimes called the shoes, but uh, the, the Greek, the wording really is, he tells us to put on our feet, so like shoes, put on our feet the readiness of the gospel of peace. Put on this readiness. I think Paul is probably picking up the themes in Isaiah again, uh, specifically that passage in Isaiah 52 where he says, where, where Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The truth is that the gospel is a gospel of peace, and it's good news. We have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We were hostile to him. We were enemies of God, but yet through Jesus, he made peace with us. And because he's made peace with us, we can go forth and make peace with one another and with our neighbors. And so the, the emphasis in this passage is on that readiness, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Meaning, are we ready to go forth and proclaim this good news of peace? That's a question we should ask ourselves. Do we know the message? Do we know the gospel of peace? And are we ready to share it when opportunity comes? Satan would would love to have you never, ever feel ready to share the gospel, whether with a family member or a friend or anyone. He would have you always, always getting ready, always preparing, but never, never feeling like you can do it. But again, that falls into that trap of depending upon ourselves, depending on our own wits. The power of the gospel is not in our, our, our wisdom or our smarts or our skills or tactics. No, the power of the gospel is in the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God would have us share the gospel joyfully and boldly and see him do the rest. And then we come to the shield of faith. The shield of faith, there's not another biblical reference in the Old Testament, too, that talks about a shield of faith. In fact, when you hear about the shield in a shield in the Old Testament, the shield is actually the Lord himself. We read in Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. This is a good lesson for us to remember. Faith by itself is actually meaningless. Faith by itself is meaningless. Because what makes faith powerful is the thing in which you have faith. The object of your faith is what makes your faith effective. So you can have a wonderfully strong, strong, solid faith in a weak branch. And you can climb out on that branch and it will break and you will fall and be ruined. But if you have a weak faith, you have a weak faith in a strong branch, it will never fail you. You can go on that and you can hang all day. Our God is strong. And the reason our faith is effective is because of the one in whom we have faith. And Christ calls us to have faith in him, to believe in him, to depend on him, to trust in him, to love him. 
And it's not simply enough to believe that there is a God or that there is a Jesus who died for the forgiveness of sins. He must be your God. He must be your Savior who has died for your sins. You see, the, the demons, James tells us in James chapter 2, he tells us that demons believe in God. They probably know more about God than we do, but they hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. We must have a faith in Christ. We must cultivate a faith in Christ, trusting him with our lives day to day. And one, one more thing that's very interesting about this passage about the shields is that um, shields work best when they're put together, you know, side by side. If you imagine uh, the different Roman formations, they would, they would put their shields next to each other, and that would protect each person on your side. And so when it comes to the Christian life, our life is not a solo battle. Our warfare is not a one-man show. Well, it is one man, but it's not us. <laughs> the one man is Christ. But we need one another's faith. We need the shield to our left, the shield to our right, so that when our enemy fires those flaming darts, we won't be struck in the side. You need the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So how can you encourage someone today? How can you encourage someone's faith this week? Maybe by, by sharing a story of what the Lord is doing in your life. Maybe not just sharing what your struggles with sin, but also your, your triumphs over sin through the power of Christ. That kind of testimony will strengthen the faith of your brothers and sisters. And the next, the next piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. And another place in, in Thessalonians, Paul talks about the, this, this helmet of salvation, but he calls it the, the helmet of the hope of salvation. So I think what he's trying to get at here is that in the helmet of salvation, in salvation, we have a sure and definite hope. See, we, the Christian life is not one of just like hoping against hope that maybe someday you will be saved. Maybe you will have victory. That is not what the Christian life is. It's not a, it's not a continual suspension and doubt of what, how it's going to end. We know how it's going to end because Christ has already won the decisive battle. The enemy has been defeated, and Christ will reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And so for the Christian, you are not fighting unto victory. You're fighting from the victory that Christ has already won. And that brings us to the last piece of armor. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, Paul is telling us that our, our weapon, our sword, is being equipped with the scriptures, being equipped with the word of God. In Hebrews, we read that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is powerful in this way because... Uh, it is living and active because the Spirit who wields it is living and active. The Spirit works through His Word. The Bible is a special kind of book because as you read the Scriptures, the Scriptures are reading you back because the Spirit of God is working through them, reading you and discerning your thoughts and convicting you. So we see in, 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 in the Gospels when Jesus was tempted by, by Satan— he was full of the Spirit. And then when Satan attacked him, how did he respond? He responded with the Word of God, full of the Spirit, Word and Spirit together. 
And because, that, because the Spirit works through his word in this way, Satan does his best to prevent people from being exposed to it. We, re- we read in the parable of the sower that the sower goes and he, he throws seed, and some of that seed lands on the path, and the birds come and gobble up that seed. And Jesus interprets this and says, that is Satan coming and gobbling up the word from people's hearts, taking it away from them. He doesn't want them to be exposed to it. I heard a story of how this can play out from someone I met in, uh, in Georgia. He had immigrated to the United States many, many years ago from northern Iraq. He was an Assyrian Christian. So he came from one of the most ancient churches on, on our earth. And he said that in his context growing up, people would honor and revere the scriptures. They would keep the the Bible prominently displayed in their homes, and they would even kiss the Bible. And and then he told me, but they won't read it. They don't read it. And who do you think is behind that, he asked, but Satan. To take a a more positive example um, of the power of the word, I I met another person, a cross-cultural worker who was ministering among people from a, a Muslim background. And these were, these were non-believers. And he was reading through the Gospel of John. And he was in that passage in John, chapter 10, where Jesus says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And at this point in the, in the, in the Bible study, uh, the Bible discussion, he, he just stopped and he asked everyone who was there, who do you think Jesus is, is talking about in this passage? He just waited for them to answer. And finally, one of them said, he's talking about us. We are his sheep that are not yet in his fold. And sure enough, as time went on, these members of that discussion all came to faith in Christ. The power of the word, the spirit working through the word of God is much more powerful than anything we could ever bring to bear on our lives. And so God calls us to take the belt of truth, to take the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness of the gospel of peace, to take the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. He has made his power available to you that you may stand against the schemes of the enemy. But how can we take it up? How do we take it up? That's the last point here. Paul talks about prayer. Prayer must pervade our warfare. In fact, it seems almost that prayer could be a a seventh piece of armor. Like grammatically, it looks like it would be that. But it's, it's not that. In fact, it's supposed to characterize our entire stance as we are standing against the devil. Um, the, this metaphor uh, reminds us, the, the armor metaphor is inseparable uh, from God himself. And, and that metaphor reminds us of our complete and utter dependence upon God. And prayer, prayer is the perfect example, the perfect demonstration of our complete dependence upon God. John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. So if you would want to have God's strength applied to your life, you must pray. And so that's what Paul exhorts us to do. He, he exhorts us by using four times this word all. He tells us to pray all the time in the Spirit, 
to pray with all kinds of prayer and supplication and to pray with all perseverance for all the saints. So we pray constantly. We pray in thanksgiving. We pray in lament, in confession, in rejoicing, and in weeping. We pray for wisdom, for patience, for love. We pray for our families. We pray for our friends. We pray for our our neighbors. We pray for our church, for our school, for our neighbors, and our our city, our, our country, our state. We pray continually for all things. If you want to see the power of God come to bear on your life and the circumstances of your life, pray, Paul calls us to do. In this, this morning's service, we read, we sang, one of the great hymns of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in fact, you could almost outline this, this passage in that, that's, that hymn would be a sermon for this passage of our, our spiritual struggle against our enemies and the nature of Christ and how he has won the victory. I want to point you back to the second verse of that great hymn. This is what he says, Martin Luther wrote, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So in your, in your life, in your spirit, the spiritual struggles of your life, are you still confiding in your own strength? If you are, don't be surprised when all of your striving turns to losing. So victory is certain. Victory is certain, but not because of us, but because the right man is on our side, Christ. Jesus himself has taken up his armor, and he has gone into single combat with our enemies, and he has prevailed. He has put sin, your sin, my sin, death beneath his feet, and all the forces of the enemy. He has won the battle. So take up his armor. Trust in him. And stand in the victory that he has won for you and for me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would indeed stand. That we would stand in the victory that Christ has won. The one that he one on the cross and in the resurrection. Lord, he has put to death, death. He has put to death our sins. And Lord, you have raised him up to everlasting glorified life. And you have united us to him. Let us take up the resources, the spiritual strength and power that you have demonstrated in Christ. And may it be implemented in our own lives. May your spirit fill us, Lord, as he has filled your son, that we would conquer sins as Christ has conquered sin, but not because of our strength or our smarts, Lord, but because of you, the one who has defeated them on our behalf in Christ. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.